0: Edgar Allan Poe wrote a poem titled Lenore, in four stanzas, circling round a beautiful young woman who had died and the way her lover and so-called friends approach mourning her loss. The lover refuses to sob and wring his hands. The poem closes with his lines. No dirge will I upraise, but waft the angel on her flight with a pin of old days, let no bell toll, lest her sweet soul, amid its hollowed mirth, should catch the note as it doth float up from the damned earth. To friends above, from fiends below, the indignant ghost is riven, from hell unto a high estate far up within the heaven, from grief and groan to a golden throne beside the King of Heaven. Those words closing out Edgar Allan Poe's poem titled Lenore. Well, maybe the AI program we're about to encounter has delivered a sequel to Poe's Lenore. Perhaps the lover has launched Lenore to Mars and not heaven. And maybe she'll run into the little prince as she roams the planet. More on that from David Poyer, who is the esteemed author of nearly 50 books, including the long-running Dan Lenson Modern Navy series. He's also an educator, an editor, and a publisher who taught for 16 years in the Maslow family graduate creative writing program at Wilkes University in Wilkes-Barre. We spoke with Boyer recently about his fiction writing and also about his recent volume, Writing in the Age of AI, What You Need to Know to Survive and Thrive. He begins where the book began here in Pennsylvania, and that's where we begin asking him to tell the tale.
1: That's the story in the book that I start out with, which is how I was, gosh, I don't even remember how old I was, four or five, sitting on the back porch with my mom in western Pennsylvania, and she had a stock answer for my stock questions. I would ask her, where did the sky come from? God made it. Where did the railroad come from? God made it. Where do books come from? I asked her. She said, writers, write them. And I realized right then what I was here for. That was my call to action, as it were. That was my inciting incident, uh, which is important both in fiction and in life, I think. And I, I know some people have that and other people don't. And I think I was lucky to have that that call to action and that inciting incident and that That early direction as to where I was going. There have been lots of detours around the way, you know, naval service and submarine engineering and uh, think tanks in DC. But I, I began writing in my late 20s and I've never really stopped since.
0: And you are an accomplished writer. Quantity is not the key, but the fact that you have such long-standing relationships with the most respected publishing enterprises says something. Oh, very, very lucky. I think that was,
1: that was sheer fortune, I think, Erica, that, uh, that I managed to hook up with a wonderful editor early in my career. And at the moment, I think uh, I've done the 22 Dan Lenson novels, which are the Modern Navy books and five or six other books with St. Martin's Press, and five or six other books with other imprints of Macmillan. So I've been with Macmillan for well over 30 years, and with the same editor, which is really, really remarkable in New York. Uh, I've dealt with others, Simon & Schuster and Other publishers, and Lenore, whom you have interviewed, Lenore Hart, has also dealt with several New York publishers, and I have to say, Macmillan does treat you like family. It must have been what it was like with all the imprints before they were bought by conglomerates. And Macmillan is part of a German conglomerate, but for some reason or somehow they've managed to preserve that family atmosphere. So I've been very fortunate. And I feel sorry for writers who are beginning today. I have something that I say. The The first thing I would say to someone who's beginning to write today is, you know, my condolences. And you mean that. I do. I do. It's the, the mountain has gotten much deeper. I was able to start writing, writing short stories and publishing short stories and short articles. And the whole short story market has pretty much gone away except for the literary magazines which I respect greatly, but they're not really a paying market, and there are not that many of them, and there are fewer of them every year. In terms of articles, that's possible. Um, I began writing short stories and articles, and then my muse got long-winded, and the short stories became novellas, and the novellas became novels, and the novels became series. So I was able to grow in a way that's... um, It's not impossible today, I think, but I think it's going to be much more difficult. And that's really one reason why I wrote Writing in the Age of AI, because I'm trying to encapsulate 35 years of experience in the field and give people direction as to how to write, how to market, uh, how to think about the whole career, and especially how to deal with the challenge of AI.
0: People aren't always good judges of their own work and you encourage people to read and know not just the tradition but what is possible.
1: Yes, when I taught for 16 years at Wilkes I encouraged my students to to read outside their genre for one thing, to read cross genre, to read, you know, if someone wanted to write genre literature that was great with me. I'm happy. I'm happy with that, but I think they should also have a background in the language that they're writing in and the arcanum that they're writing in and some sort of literary tradition. I had a couple of mentors who had a, a, a big influence on me. One was John Gardner. I got to teach with Gardner under the auspices of the New Virginia Review, and he was my, he became my beau ideal of what a real writer is, you know, committed a craftsperson focused on one of the things he used to say was, look for the look for the monsters under the ice. He would say, Dave, look for the monsters under the ice. And uh, I didn't even really, really understand what he was talking about for like months to years afterward, because he would say something and I'd register it and I'd think about it. And then gradually I would realize what he was what he was talking about. And another of my mentors was Frank Green from Florida, who was uh, Catherine Ann Porter's last secretary. And uh, Frank had some workshops down there and helped a lot of young writers. And one thing he used to say is that the reader is always in trouble. The reader is always in trouble. Meaning that you have the idea and the picture in your head of what's going on, but the, the reader doesn't. And it's your responsibility as the writer to convey clearly from your brain to his or her brain what is going on. And that is something also I don't see a lot of young writers understand. And so that's what I'm addressing. And the earlier, I don't know, 70% of the book are things like that. And how to structure and how to plan. I'm a big planner. I don't believe in sitting down and thinking about, oh, what's my book going to be about and then starting to write. No, 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 no. It's like a group of construction people reporting to a site and looking at each other and say, well, what are we going to build today? It doesn't work that way. They come in with blueprints. They come in with lists of materials. They come in with timelines. And I show in the book how to use this planning process to make writing easier for yourself. Because once you know what is going to happen, you know, it's going to change, but at least If you have an idea what's going to happen and in what order and what the results are and who the characters are and what they want and what their obstacles are, then it takes a lot of the unpleasantness and fear out of writing. And I see so many people are afraid uh, and they're too critical and, and they've run out of steam halfway through because they don't know where they're going and they haven't planned
0: for it. One of your students sat where you were sitting, and she wanted to seek you out because she was going to write a novel, and she knew that her style was absolutely opposite from what you just described. She wanted to work with you because she knew you would challenge her in ways that she needed to grow, and when she finished the novel, she thinks the world of you and is so grateful to you for helping her come to realize how important structure is.
1: Well, I think everyone does structure in some way. The real geniuses do it in their head. People like me, we have to do it on paper.
0: But it does not mean, and people shouldn't think that that means, therefore, your creativity is limited, or that you're doing, you have a template and you just fill in the blanks. That's not what you're talking about.
1: Well, the template thing is that's kind of a sore spot with me because we're dealing with one editor at the moment, you know, not at Macmillan. And, and not for one of my books, but for someone who's a friend who has this template idea. And it's a good idea to understand the template and to understand Campbellian analysis.
0: And that's Joseph Campbell and the hero's journey and all of that? yeah,
1: the descent to the underworld and the series of trials and all that sort of thing. And I cover that in the book as well. It, you have to understand it, but you can't stick to it like a template or or like a recipe or an algorithm. Especially people who are poets, when they first try to write novels, they they either dismiss the idea of planning or else they go to the whole idea of You know, here is a step-by-step process that I need to follow, and if I do this, it'll be all right. Well, you need to, to do everything at once. And sort of the planning process helps you not have to do everything at once because you separate them out in your planning process. And, well, I could show you this more easily on paper, I guess. But, yeah, it's a combination of all these events and all these procedures. And you have to keep a lot of balls in the air, especially as a novelist. As a short story writer, it's it's simpler. And I find uh, I'm doing some plays now. I started out just to amuse myself, but then one of my plays got picked up and produced in Zurich in the Zurich English-Speaking Theater, and now I'm an internationally produced playwright, and I thought, gee, this is this is different. Now let's try this. So I've written a couple new plays, and
0: uh, we'll see where those go. You're using all that you've experienced up to this point, and you've always been writing dialogue in your, mm-hmm. In mm-hmm. your novels and so forth. What is it that's different?
1: Well, what's different about writing plays is uh, I don't have to work as hard as all I have to do is the dialogue and just a few simple page directions, and I don't have to do all this description. It's a lot easier because I can leave a lot of things to the actors and a director. So I, I mean, real playwrights will laugh at me for saying this, but uh, it feels easier to me. And I'm sure as I write more and more plays, if I do, that I'll soon discover how naive my attitude was.
0: In your book, you include a list of novels that you might recommend your students read. What would you suggest that people take away from a list like this? Oh,
1: it's an appendix in the back of the book, and I call it novels that I teach to. And the idea was when I took a new student on board or when I was speaking with a student who was thinking of studying with me i needed some way to gauge where they were coming from so i gave them i made this list up uh, you know all the books that i was conversant with and i was trying to establish a shared universe if you will a universe of discourse in which we could communicate and so i would give them this list and i'd say which of these books have you read and you know are you reasonably familiar with unfortunately Even in a graduate program, I was taken aback by how few books many of the students had read, and most of them checked off the ones that they had been required to read in high school. And that was kind of sobering to me, because here were people who were entering a graduate creative writing program that is very well respected, and they were selected for that on the basis of their writing samples, yet they had read so little. This was kind of eye-opening, and not in a good way. But it was a way that I could gauge where they were coming from and what I what I had to do with them, really. So that was that was the idea of that list.
0: And it's a terrific list for any of us because it's an international list. Mm-hmm. It's a list that goes back in time. Mm-hmm. It's people we hear about, and we have the connection at Wilkes with Norman Mailer. Norman Mailer is on it. James <laughs> Joyce, Mary Shelley, and Joyce Carol Oates. Mm-hmm. and short story writers, African writers. Many of these are in translation too, right? Yes. When you were moving from the short story and the essays into novel writing, did you have novelists in mind who, not that you wanted to imitate, but the impact of those books on you as a person? You thought, I'd like my books to mm-hmm. move others like so-and-so moved me. Yeah, I think so. the... the. The influence was
1: most marked in the case of my Hemlock County books. Uh, The Hemlock County books are a remote, mysterious county in Pennsylvania that has kind of been left behind by progress and is isolated. And mysterious things happen there, some of which are not very nice. And so uh, that was I kind of modeled the voice, if you will, on Steinbeck and Faulkner. Which you probably saw. So that's uh, the last one of those was "Thunder on the Mountain," and uh, I'm thinking of bringing out the prequel to this, which uh, nobody has ever read to date. It was the first book I did called "The Hill," and it's mainly about uh, mainly about cross country running and a teacher who gets involved with one of her students and. And uh, a small town that is, you know, riven and divided uh, about things. And so I, I wrote that as the first thing I ever wrote, and nobody has ever read it. And so I went through it recently and thought, um, I think this is salvageable. So I rewrote it, and I'm thinking of bringing that out. But that would that would make book number five in the Hemlock County series.
0: Speaking of books set in Pennsylvania, because you are from. Pennsylvania. Did you have any interchange with John Gardner on his Susquehanna County life?
1: Well, it's kind of funny because uh, at one point when we were together, we were sitting in a bar, I think in Danville, and we sort of were tossing ideas back and forth. And the idea that we came up with, he made into Mickelson's Ghosts, and I made into Winter in the Heart. So if you look at those two books together, you'll say, hmm, the plot here sounds a little familiar, although the characters are different and the setting is different, but you'll see the similarities. So that was that was fun.
0: Did you stay in touch up until the time he had his accident?
1: Yeah, on and off. It was really tragic that we lost him so young. But if you got to go, you know, on a Harley Davidson is the way to go.
0: That was here in Susquehanna County when he was 49. Yeah. Let's then talk about the world we're entering, that you can't log on to a newspaper or pick up a newspaper or hear a news report without some mention of AI Mm -hmm. each day. And each day things are changing, and I would think it would be a challenge to say to yourself how can i write a book that's going to be between two covers that will have the principles that people need to be aware of yet still be up to date as the technology changes from week to week
1: well let's see when you erica make up your your scripts or when you are preparing materials for your shows do you use a typewriter oh no
0: longer <laughs> uh
1: huh do you use a fountain pen
0: I use a pencil and paper first. Okay. Yes, I get my way to the well, keyboard and the computer.
1: Yeah, that's uh, you know the tools that we're using, even in the time I've been in the business. I, I began with a manual typewriter and carbon paper and whiteout and progressed through lazy writer and the TRS-80 and those wonderful early computers and those horrible early word processing programs and... They're tools, and we learn to use them, and I think AI is going to be another tool that that is somewhere between a tool and a crutch. It is going to be a crutch for some people, and unfortunately, it's going to be the kind of crutch that, as you use it, it weakens your own muscles. For others who understand the principles of playwriting, poetry, novel writing, screenplays, who already understand those principles and the underlying skeletons of story, they will be able to use this tool to speed up their production and also to adapt their production to different audiences. One of the most useful things that I've discovered about it is that I'm able to input a piece of prose and ask it to render that in eighth-grade level text. So it immediately does a very good job of of uh, simplifying the text. Uh, so simplifying, translating, summarizing, these are things AI can do for us. Creating is a different story. Here's an example. Um, I, I worked with uh, six or seven different AI programs over the, over the couple of months that I was writing this chapter here. And I asked one of it, tell me about Lenore on Mars that was my prompt. Tell me about Lenore on Mars. So it says, Lenore on Mars is a fictional character created by Edgar Allan Poe in his poem, Lenore. She is described as a beautiful woman with red hair, and she is said to be living on Mars, which is absolute BS, right? So I, uh, you know, obviously it's hallucinating. So I said, well, that's interesting. Tell me more. It says, in the poem, Lenore is a symbol of beauty and love, and her presence on Mars is said to bring light and hope to the planet. The poem also explores themes of loss and longing, as the narrator of the poem is mourning the loss of his beloved Lenore. Okay, I'm, I'm cogitating on this, so I, I explore further. I said, what is the significance of Lenore living on Mars? I completely made that up. The significance of Lenore living on Mars is that it symbolizes the unattainability of love and beauty. By placing Lenore on an unreachable planet, Poe is conveying the idea that love and beauty can be desirable, but ultimately unattainable. It also serves as a reminder that although love and beauty can be desired, they can never truly be possessed. And I'm starting to think, all right, all right, I see where it's going here, and that's maybe a, uh, maybe a thought-provoking place for a poem, or maybe even a short story. So it's shameless BS, but it does kind of give you a signpost, uh, you know, a, a finger post pointing to someplace you might
0: want to explore. So when we see Lenore on Mars by David Poyer, we we know where it came from. But I'd be much more comfortable if the idea came from a conversation between you and John Gardner at a bar in Danville. But the idea of a red-haired woman on Mars by Poe in the poem. Well, yeah.
1: Uh, If you submitted uh, an essay on this, uh, you know, you would probably not get a very good grade. Um, But I went on, you know, from that from that position. And I ask a couple of them to actually write me the poem Lenore on Mars. And it, they were horrible. They were <laughs> very bad poems. So I don't think the poets have too much to worry about so far.
0: As always, whenever you sit at this table, you're full of good sense. And sense is, it's a tool, but it can become a crutch. And what you're allowing us to do with this book is to, as you say, three quarters of it is to Think about what good writing is and know those principles and use this as a way of expediting or, for example, making your work available to a younger demographic.
1: Well, yes, and, you know, we have, we're going to be carried into the future whether or not we like it. Uh, so we might as well begin to paddle with the
0: current. David Poyer best-selling author of nearly 50 books, including the long-running Dan Lenson Modern Navy series. He's an educator, an editor, and publisher. He taught for 16 years in the Maslow Family Graduate Creative Writing Program at Wilkes-University in Wilkes-Barre. We've been speaking with David Poyer about his recent volume titled, Writing in the Age of AI, What You Need to Know to Survive and thrive that's been issued by Northampton House Press that's writing in the age of AI what you need to know to survive and thrive and if you need more information you can check David Poyer's website which is Poyer.com P-O-Y-E-R.com or you can look for Northampton House Press online